Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. There was a wide open sky over Texas Hill Country the night Sputnik launched. There was no address by President Eisenhower on the radio or on the millions of television screens across the country. But there were fuzzy news reports of the great technological advance that had put a Soviet satellite the size of a beach ball circling the Earth every 98 minutes. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. That October evening, Senator Lyndon Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird, were hosting a barbecue at their ranch outside Austin for some friends and political influencers. When they heard about Sputnik, everyone wanted to see the satellite. So Johnson led his guests on a walk alongside the Pedernales River that flowed through their ranch land. They looked up into the clear autumn air full of stars. They strained to see the tiny flicker moving across the sky, but no such luck. Science fiction had become reality that night. The very first object ever to go to space was now circling the Earth. In some ways it was an end, a finish line that had been crossed, but of course, it was also a beginning. Lyndon Johnson walked back inside. Senator Richard Russell was on the line. Russell was a titan of the Senate. Despite his opposition to civil rights, today one of the main Senate buildings on Capitol Hill is actually named after him. He was a senior Democrat from Georgia who served in Congress for decades. When Johnson had first joined the Senate, he could tell, that's the guy I've got to cozy up to. Richard Russell knew everyone, and he had tons of power. Johnson was great at getting what he wanted, so sure enough, he made an ally out of Russell. More than an ally, actually. Russell groomed Johnson as his protege. He showed Johnson the ropes, he got him prime spots on committees. He even helped Johnson become the Senate majority leader. And now, here was Russell on the phone with his latest idea for how to help Johnson's political rise. Sputnik. If just a few more things fell into place, Sputnik could end up looking really bad for the Eisenhower administration. Instead of being seen as some global scientific achievement, it would look like Eisenhower had missed a threat to the United States. And that would give the Democrats a perfect opportunity to attack him. Johnson absolutely agreed. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. The Sputniks have inspired a wide variety of suggestions. These range from acceleration of missile programs to shooting a rocket around the moon to an indiscriminate increase in every kind of military and scientific adventure. 
choice fell on Leica because she showed better aptitudes during preliminary tests. The coins of the heart function, the blood pressure, and the respiration rate will perform. know that President Eisenhower didn't immediately freak out when Sputnik launched. But the next very important thing to know is that at first, most Americans didn't either. We tend to forget that today. We have this image of everyone instantly panicking. Fortunately, a famous cultural anthropologist at the time, Margaret Mead, had the foresight to document people's actual reactions around the country to Sputnik when it happened. Right after the launch, she sent out telegrams to a wide array of U.S. citizens, and she asked them to respond to some questions. Basically, when did you hear about the launch of Sputnik? What do you think? What does this bode for the future? Those are sort of the basic questions. This is former NASA historian Roger Launius. And the results of those are pretty fascinating because it's overwhelmingly not a fear-based thing at all. It's sort of, you know, it's really great that this happened. It really does mean that, you know, science is marching on and the new age has begun and maybe we can go to the moon and the planets and other places. And so that's the initial reaction for the first three or four days, maybe even a week after Sputnik is launched. The Library of Congress has some of these responses that Meade got back. And they include crayon drawings that children sent of these colorful little planets and twinkly stars, and then a cute little ball of Sputnik flying among them. But remember, this was 1957, the heart of the Cold War. So, of course, there were some people who started wondering about the implications. Eisenhower gave a news conference the following week, and reporters asked a flurry of questions. Could you give us, sir, the American story? You are not more concerned... What are we going to do about it? ...about our nation's security. Can you tell us more about the satellite? Eisenhower stuck to his original position. He emphasized that the launch had no national security implications. As far as the satellite itself is concerned, that doesn't raise my apprehensions, not one iota. And he reminded the public that this Soviet satellite launch was part of a coordinated effort for the International Geophysical Year. The scheduling of this program has been described to and closely coordinated with the International Geophysical Year scientists of all countries. His comments were meant to reassure the public. But he sort of has a tin ear when it comes to responding to these things. Eisenhower was like, you've got some anxieties. What anxieties? Everything's fine. In itself, it imposes no additional threat to the United States. Thank you. He did not do the things that you might expect a proactive president to do to sort of respond to concerns that were being raised. Which meant... Here was Johnson's opening. Johnson was waiting in the wings while Eisenhower fumbled. 
And now all that Johnson needed was a good plan of attack. There was a Democratic strategist who wrote him a very long memo just after Sputnik and said, here's how you can use this. Here's how you can turn this Sputnik moment to your advantage. And he laid it all out. The memo was placed in Johnson's hands on October 17th, 1957. So this is like two weeks after Sputnik's launch. It came from an aide named George Reedy. That piece of paper would unlock something for Johnson. It would set him on a path forward. Reedy was a democratic strategist, but he was also something of a science fiction and space fan. He wrote to Johnson, the race for control of the universe has started. What Johnson needed to do, he said, was frame Sputnik as a major national security failure, rake Eisenhower over the coals, and then push Congress to fund a dramatic U.S. space exploration effort. Reedy wrote that doing all of that would, quote, blast the Republicans out of the water, unify the Democratic Party, and elect you president. Space was not an issue Johnson ever thought he'd be championing. He had been trying to make a name for himself with civil rights legislation. But he was having trouble attacking Eisenhower on that front right now. Good evening, my fellow citizens. At the same time that Sputnik is taking place, Eisenhower has called out the National Guard in Little Rock to desegregate the local school system. Serious situation that has arisen in Little Rock. Here's Eisenhower's news conference about Little Rock. To make this talk, I have come to the president's office in the White House. And, you know, Johnson realizes that they're not going to be able to use that. For one thing, Eisenhower's already taken some, some steps in the direction that should be taken. I yesterday issued a proclamation calling upon the mob to disperse. But more than that, the Democrats, especially Southern Democrats, as in important colleagues like Senator Richard Russell, were filled with segregationists, and they weren't going to support that idea. So Sputnik would have to do as the punching bag. It was absolutely something he could harness. Claiming space as his calling card would make Johnson look tougher than the president on the Soviet threat, and it would make Johnson the dreamer, the architect of an ambitious project that, in Reedy's words, could be one of the great dividing lines in American and world history, the whole history of humanity. Johnson and this aide and some other close colleagues arranged a briefing at the Pentagon to get caught up on rocketry and satellites. And afterwards, they returned to Capitol Hill closed themselves in Senator Russell's office, and they hatched a plan. Russell was the head of the powerful Senate Armed Services Committee. He said, let's use one of my subcommittees to open an investigation into Sputnik. And Johnson, you should chair the hearings. At the same time, the Soviets were planning their next move. Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, had somewhat reluctantly agreed to let his chief rocket designer, Sergei Korolev, send up that Sputnik satellite. So they launched Sputnik, and the world goes, goes crazy about 
and Khrushchev, and Khrushchev goes to, to Carl Evan and goes, this is great. What can you launch next? This is NASA's historian, Bill Barry. And so suddenly he likes the space program because it's, it can do all this great political stuff for him. Khrushchev wanted the next flight to happen in time to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the October Revolution, a key event in the Russian Revolution of 1917, which brought the communist government to power. The anniversary was less than a month away. So Korolev and his team needed to think of something even more impressive that they could pull off really fast. Then came the idea. Korolev goes, well, we used to launch these dogs on suborbital flights. We take one of the suborbital dog things and launch a dog into space for you. He said, do it. Hurl a dog into orbit. That was the idea that went out. They took a stray mutt that was found on the streets of Moscow, and on November 3rd, 1957, the Soviets launched her into space. The flight of this dog, Laika, was coined Sputnik 2. Sputnik dogs, Laika, first space traveler, was ready for the takeoff, and here it is. They threw that together in one month and were able to put Laika the dog up. Never mind that the dog died two days later orbiting Earth when the cooling system failed. Though honestly, that was only about a week earlier than they figured it would die up there. And so the implications of that were that they could put a much larger, heavier payload into space. Margaret Weidekamp, a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. And that was important because these flights were always being read as analogs for what could be done with a nuclear weapon. Khrushchev and Korolev had essentially stumbled into a realization. Space stunts were great propaganda for their weapons capabilities. Korolev now had a justification for working on these wild spaceflight projects. And even though the public didn't know he was behind the successes, the Soviet government did. Korolev finally seemed to be back in good graces, and he could try to leave his own personal nightmare years under Stalin behind. But his body still bore the scars. His health had been failing ever since his years in prison, and the intense work over the past few months on Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2 had exacerbated his health problems. As the fall turned toward winter, Korolev decided to rest up in the same town by the sea where years before, his mentor Friedrich Sander had gone. Sander had gone there when he was run down from the rocket program and had died of typhus there in Kislovodsk. Now Korolev was there, having run himself into the ground with rocket work, just like his former boss. Sander had been the one who got Korolev dreaming of space. If only he were alive to see what they had accomplished. But not only was Sander dead, Korolev couldn't even find his grave. His body was somewhere beneath an unmarked stone in this seaside town. Was this what happened to those who literally gave their lives to the Soviet state 
They helped the country to the stars, then died unknown and unacknowledged. Korolev couldn't bear the thought. He pushed through his own health problems and went back to Moscow. He would later convince the government to build a monument honoring Sander, recognizing, thanking a man who dedicated his life to Soviet spaceflight. On American television, space crept into the regular programming. This is the cabin for Laika. Creams your skin while you wash. Three, two, one. He disappeared with a number of enemy scientists at the end. And 600 miles, the half-ton satellite joined the meteors in outer space to orbit around the Earth at 18,000 miles. Back in the United States, the race between Eisenhower and Johnson was on. If Sputnik 1 had left the president vulnerable, Sputnik 2, a Soviet dog circling the Earth, that had the potential to really make him look weak and underprepared. That possibility wasn't lost on Eisenhower. So this time around, he gave two speeches very shortly after the launch. My fellow citizens, my subject tonight is science and national security. He again tried to explain to the public that these launches shouldn't make us scared of the Soviets' missile and nuclear capabilities. There has been much discussion lately about whether Soviet technological breakthroughs may have suddenly exposed us to immediately increased danger in spite of the strength of our defenses. As I pointed out last week, this is not the case. But behind the scenes, Eisenhower was hustling to put an end to these public embarrassments. He appointed the current president of MIT to serve as his special assistant on science and technology. He pushed for the Navy to launch its now-overdue scientific satellite program, Vanguard. And he told Werner von Braun's army group to start preparing to launch a satellite, just in case Vanguard continued to take forever. Over on Capitol Hill, Johnson was probably pacing up and down, watching Eisenhower's moves. Johnson had already started organizing his congressional investigation into Sputnik and into the state of the U.S. missile program, but time was of the essence. He needed the hearings to kick off fast, before this golden moment was gone. I wanted to get a better sense of the way that Johnson's Sputnik hearings played out, what it would have been like to watch them unfold in the fall of 1957. The closest I could get was to go over to Capitol Hill and meet with a Senate historian who has access to all the old Senate files. Hi, Kate. Hello, Lily. <laughs> nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you, too. Bishop, nice this to meet is you. Bishop, nice to meet you. <laughs> this is Kate Scott. Sometimes I chuckle nervously because I'm like, oh my God, I'm so geeking out. I need to just back up and slow down. This is an enormous investigation that Johnson is about to conduct. 
It will be under the public spotlight, like the congressional hearings in the early 1900s into the Titanic sinking. Or like the Watergate hearings will be about 15 years later. So Kate Scott helped walk me through how Johnson pulled this off. And the first thing she pointed out was that Johnson was by no means a space buff. Johnson's not an expert on space technology, on missile defense, even on national security. He relies on staff to bring him up to speed on these issues. He needs people to write questions that they're going to ask in these hearings. He needs people who know enough about these topics to help bring him up to speed so that when he sits at the dais and asks the witnesses the questions, he knows what to expect. He knows how to respond to their answers. So there's one very important person who is working on Johnson's team here. Well, first we had to select witnesses. This is archival audio of her from years later, reflecting back on that time. And her name is Eileen Galloway. Galloway was a brilliant woman in her 50s who worked as a researcher for Congress. She had developed a particular expertise in researching national defense issues. In fact, just a few months before the Sputnik launch, she had written up a comprehensive report for Senator Richard Russell and his Armed Services Committee on the state of missile development around the world. So Johnson pulled her over to help him prepare for these new hearings. <laughs> he's really great at picking talent, is what he's, he's really great at picking talent. She's very talented. The thing about Eileen Galloway is that in most spaces that she inhabits on Capitol Hill, she would be the only woman. Her portfolio was really all about national security and missile defense. She was wicked smart. <laughs> I'm sure that she was probably ran circles around a lot of the other people on Capitol Hill. But she certainly knew how to operate around men who probably were not used to listening to women. Galloway and other aides eventually lined up more than 70 expert witnesses to testify about the potential failures in the government's defense and space-related programs. And um, we had all the scientists and engineers and all the people from industry and people from the government and uh, people from academic life uh, to testify as to how well we were prepared to deal with a missile satellite situation. It was a massive, high-profile effort thrown together on an extremely tight timeline. If you were working for Lyndon Johnson, everything had to be done in a hurry, and we were working on it from uh, morning to night. Johnson wouldn't let anything get in the way of pulling it off. He was a very, very interesting person. He had a powerful effect on people. And he had a powerful effect on uh, this space, getting the space started the way it should be in the very beginning. It was energy and enthusiasm. And I would say that the other thing about Johnson that's important to remember is that he was incredibly ambitious. And the work that he's doing here in the Senate, he sees as hopefully helpful to him on that political path to the White House. The hearings started less than two months after the initial Sputnik launch. Sputnik 1 went up at the beginning of October, Sputnik 2 at the beginning of November, and then by the end of the month, Johnson's hearings were underway. Johnson 
had them take place in the Grand Caucus Room. Kate took me down to see it. It's a high-ceilinged, ornate room right off the main rotunda of the Senate building. It's just about the perfect setting for an important hearing. There's something about this space that makes you feel like... Yeah. What you say in here matters. <laughs> I always think of congressional hearings like sort of a Broadway production, planning for a Broadway production. What you're going, what you're trying to do is set the stage for developing a narrative that can convince members of Congress and the American public about the significance of a particular problem, and in doing so, suggest there must be a solution to addressing this problem that can come from Congress. It feels a little dark in here, actually. Despite the, the bright light from the chandelier, it feels a little cavernous for some reason. Um, beautiful marble walls. It would later become the site of the Watergate hearings. These gorgeous marble columns and this big, beautiful wooden furniture. I don't know if it's mahogany or what It was here on November 25th, 1957, that Johnson gave his opening remarks as chair of the Sputnik Committee. Kate read me the start of his statement. We are here today to inquire into the facts on the state of the nation's security. Our country is disturbed over the tremendous military and scientific achievement of Russia. Our people have believed that in the field of scientific weapons and in technology and science that we were well ahead of Russia. And then he goes on to say, but these la- the launches, these two launches of Sputniks 1 and 2 um, suggest that we're actually behind and that we've been sort of falsely convinced that we've been ahead. And now what are we going to do about it? So he presented this forceful attack on Eisenhower's failings here. But the real mastery is that he then wove it into a sense of great patriotic purpose. He rose above the punches that he himself was throwing. And then finally he says, <laughs> this, is, this is one of my favorite parts of the opening speech. I do not believe the facts will invite our people either to a siesta or to a hysteria. I believe the facts will inspire Americans to the greatest effort in American history. It was an incredible speech. And once he was done, he invited the first two witnesses to take the stand to testify before the committee. They were both prominent scientists who worked for the government. And they immediately started highlighting flaws in how the administration handled its missile programs. All I can do is use my imagination to know what it must have been like to be in that room in 1957 and 1958, but it it was electric to be in that space with the cameras going off and they're just the, like the photographers mobbed the witness table. And that's my sense from, uh, based on the hearing transcripts of what was going on in the room, in the Senate caucus room in 1957 and 1958. This was just day one of what would become six weeks of nonstop hearings. Photographers that first day captured images of Johnson presiding over the committee table of scientists at the stand, reporters filed copies of the statements and details of the tension in the room. 
That November evening, with reports from Capitol Hill reaching the White House, Eisenhower stood in the Oval Office preparing himself for a state dinner. He suddenly felt dizzy, chilled, tingling. His eyes couldn't focus enough to read his papers, and his lips couldn't form coherent words. A doctor was called in to help the president. He had just had a stroke. The stroke had been minor, but it left Eisenhower with some lingering speech and cognitive impediments. In the weeks that followed, politicians and news commentators danced with the suggestion that perhaps he shouldn't be running the country right now, given his health and the current national security crises. Johnson's hearings continued to charge forward, day after day, week after week, through the late fall. More and more scientists and military figures spoke up about what they saw as the American government's failures. Amid all this, Eisenhower was dead set to get his presidency back on course. He had to be remembered as strong, strategic, a man who could see through the fog of the Cold War. December 6th, 1957 was the big day. Finally, the launch of the Navy's Vanguard satellite. John Hagen was the director of Project Vanguard. He had been at the Soviet embassy with other scientists that evening Sputnik launched. And the past two months had been stressful and embarrassing as questions and blame mounted on him about why the U.S. had yet to launch its satellite. Well, now was its time. Director Hagen was in Washington for Vanguard's liftoff, coordinating with his deputy director who was on site at Cape Canaveral, Florida. The press, politicians, the public were all invited to watch this historic launch. The satellite itself weighed only a few pounds, but it was placed on top of a white and black rocket that was 72 feet high. The cameras were rolling. The countdown began. Hagen listened over the phone as his deputy gave the final signal. Zero, fire. Ignition. At which point this launch vehicle explodes spectacularly on the launch pad. And if you look at the film of it, you can actually see the cone of the rocket start to come off and the little satellite kind of pop up just a tiny bit and then fall down through this giant orange-red explosion of gases until it actually landed on the launch pad, at which point it started its signal and started beeping rather impotently from the launch pad. The deputy director simply said into the phone, Explosion. Director Hagen was silent on the other end of the line. A colleague beside him later described the look on Hagen's face as ravaged. 
Another guy in the control center joked that the Soviets would probably reach the moon and spray a red splotch on it. Nobody laughed. It was what you'd call a spectacular failure. By the way, they'd invited all the media to come. It was on national television, and it made the most beautiful explosion anybody has ever seen. Johnson was in the perfect position. Everything seemed to point to the fact that Eisenhower was done for. Which, oh, I mean, it's three strikes you're out here. Two Soviet successes and one American failure, and what have we got? In the first week of January 1958, Johnson brought the investigation to a dramatic close. The hearings had lasted a month and a half. They had gathered hundreds and hundreds of hours of testimony from missile experts, science professors, scientists who worked on nuclear bombs, even the head of the CIA. They each had gotten up in front of Congress to testify in the most public and persuasive way possible that all these Sputnik concerns amounted to one thing. The need for an enhanced U.S. government effort to explore outer space. These hearings had been the perfect platform for science advisors, some of whom Eisenhower had even empowered after Sputnik's launch, to make their case for space. It was as if, before taking the stand to testify, all of the scientists asked themselves the question, How do we take this particular moment and turn it into a goal that we have? The power of these hearings had basically made it impossible for Johnson or for any other lawmaker not to embrace the dream of the future that these scientists put forward. At the end of the whole investigation, Johnson stood up and presented his broad conclusions to the Democratic leaders in Congress. He was 6'4", imposing and masterful. He was the leader of the Senate and the star of an utterly well-executed political production. And where did the most powerful line of his speech come from? It came from science fiction. He addressed his fellow senators and through them the American public, and he said, quote, Control of space means control of the world. From space, the masters of infinity would have the power to control the Earth's weather, to cause drought and flood, to change the tides and raise the levels of the sea, to divert the Gulf Stream and change temperate climates to frigid. His aides said it was like listening to an Old Testament prophet. It may be my bias as a Senate historian, but I see these congressional hearings as absolutely a turning point for, you know, on this trajectory to the moon. There's nothing quite like a congressional hearing that is well organized and well presented to shape public opinion and to shape the opinion of members of Congress. Johnson had figured out how to entrap President Eisenhower, but behind that... Scientists and sci-fi lovers had figured out how to entrap Johnson. 
In those weeks of hearings, as Johnson was backing Eisenhower into a corner, scientist after scientist had taken their seat at the witness stand in the Senate caucus room, and they had boxed in Congress to see space their way and to pay for it. After the humiliation of the Sputnik investigation and the utter failure of the Vanguard satellite launch, other presidents might have decided to cut their losses, to retreat, to stay as far away as possible from the satellite game. Not Eisenhower. I think it says something about his military background, his stubbornness, and his commitment to being proven right about American supremacy. He couldn't help himself from trying one last move. Eisenhower gave Von Braun's missile group down in Huntsville, Alabama, the official go-ahead to launch a satellite. Major General John Medeiros calls Von Braun and his staff to a decisive meeting. I have a very important announcement for you. We've been assigned the mission of launching a scientific Earth satellite. I promised the Secretary of the Army that we would be ready in 90 days or less. Let's go, Warner. The Huntsville team was ready, or maybe they weren't exactly. They had extremely little time to prepare. But Von Braun definitely wasn't going to give up the chance to be a player in the space game. The satellite they were going to launch was called Explorer 1 and it had been built by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. It was set on top of a Juno-1 rocket booster, which Von Braun's team had designed, and it was set to lift off from Cape Canaveral on January 30th, 1958. All that day, the Florida coastline was being hit hard with winter winds. So they canceled the flight. The next morning, January 31st, it was still blowing. But by evening, the winds calmed. The engineers readied the rocket for launch in the cold winter darkness. Werner von Braun took his place in DC at the Pentagon. He would need to give a news conference with other Defense Department officials, whether the launch went well or poorly. The final preparations began around 10.30 p.m. It had been dark now for hours and hours. It felt like the very dead of night. A clock in the control room counted down the minutes and the seconds to launch.
Around 12.45 a.m., the satellite signal came in at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. It worked. The little Explorer satellite had successfully detached from the rocket, and it was now in orbit overhead. On the satellite was a tiny gadget that was capturing radiation data as it looped through space around Earth. That gadget was built by James Van Allen, the scientist whose dinner party eight years earlier had birthed this idea of the International Geophysical Year. That little tool flying around on a three-pound satellite through the winter sky confirmed that the Earth had a magnetic field, and the patterns of radiation it tracked and uncovered would famously come to be called the Van Allen Radiation Belts. The next day, Von Braun and Van Allen were part of a news conference in Washington. Uh, The question is, has any form of life been placed in the satellite? I think I could answer that one almost myself. Not intentionally. (laughs) Maybe we have a Florida cockroach inside, we don't know. Everybody welcomed the touches of humor, for it was, after all, an hour of jubilation. In plain language, the United States was in the space business along with the Russians, and Explorer 1 was the beginning. Under other circumstances, Explorer 1's launch might have been a really dramatic victory for Eisenhower, a grand moment in American history. But in the end, it came too late for that. The successful satellite launch didn't exactly gain Eisenhower rounds of applause. It just reduced his humiliation. He hadn't wanted to compete in space exploration. This was a waste of time, money, effort, and for what, optics? But he was starting to recognize he had no choice. He was being pressed from all sides. Johnson, for his part, was frankly sort of tiring of the space stuff too. Now that the Explorer satellite had launched, the headlines weren't constantly bashing the president or praising Johnson. He might have been happy to just cash in on the attention the hearings had gotten him and abandon any further efforts. But the same aides who had pushed Johnson in the first place were telling him he couldn't back off now. It would seem too obvious that he had only been doing it for the publicity. So, somewhat reluctantly, Both Eisenhower and Johnson stuck with it through the winter and spring of 1958. In a way, they had both been manipulated into politicizing space, putting it on the policy agenda. Science lovers were getting just what they wanted. Politicians with power, politicians who controlled national funding and goals for the United States— Those politicians were now in their own escalating little cold war to look like the bigger space supporter. Johnson chaired a follow-up effort in the Senate, the Special Committee on Space and Astronautics, and that kept the pressure on Eisenhower to do even more. That spring, with 
basically no way around some kind of drastic measure, Eisenhower came up with a proposal that he sent to Congress. He suggested they reorganize some of the government agencies and efforts and create a new civilian administration that had space as its focus. That would keep scientific space exploration goals separate from the military. It seemed to be the least thing they could get away with doing. And, uh, and I think probably left, it, left to his own devices, Eisenhower would have been happy not to create that organization. But uh, when offered that versus a Department of Space or a Department of Science and Technology, uh, this was a better option as far as he was concerned. Johnson and other senators then revised the bill, largely with the help of that researcher Eileen Galloway, whom colleagues would come to call the Grand Dame of Space. And I set it up like this, that is, in columns, which makes it easier for the members to see what the pros and the cons are. And over here I have my analysis. So that way they can decide what they want to do about it. Galloway had made it so easy for Congress to approve the bill. In July of 58, Eisenhower signed it into law the U.S. government would now have a National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. NASA was born and the space race was official. It was still three years before a new president, John F. Kennedy, would announce a race to the moon. But that now looked possible, more than possible. On the next episode of Moonrise, a new president comes into office, Von Braun moves over to work for NASA, and the U.S. and Soviets start the showdown to send humans to the moon. is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the work of the great producer Bishop Sand, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, and director of audio Jess Stahl, with editing help from Carol Alderman. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. You can find Moonrise on all the usual podcast platforms, as well as at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise. And you can find me on Twitter at Lily underscore Cunningham. Very many thanks to the experts who appeared on this episode. Bill Barry, the chief historian of NASA. Roger Lanius, a former chief historian of NASA. Kate Scott, an associate historian in the Senate Historical Office. And Margaret Weidekamp a curator at the National Air and Space Museum. Archival recordings in this episode came from Colin Fries at NASA, the U.S. National Archives, the Dwight D. Eisenhower Presidential Library, Critical Past, the NASA Archives, the U.S. Army's TV series The Big Picture, Matthias Bopp, 
his website dd1us.de, and his contributors Federico Manzini and Dick W4PUJ. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with Chapter 8. In answer to the question, uh, from my particular case, the answer is definitely yes. I have, have been following the developments as closely as I can from my uh, present duty outside of the program. And I think that all of us here being technically minded and, and having had the flight test experience uh, have thought about it. I don't think there's any question but what uh, we all have, have thought about space flight. Uh, I think that uh, I was enthusiastic about the program from the start. I enthusiastically volunteered. I had no difficulty in making my decision. It took no time whatsoever once they asked me to participate in the elimination program. Yes, I've been following the program.